the book of Hebrews, chapter 2 this morning. Um, as I was looking at this, you see uh, on the, uh, the screens, the danger of drifting. I was thinking about um, when I was younger, I did a lot of scuba diving. And I went, one time I spent a week on a, a big 65-foot sailboat in the Bahamas and dove several times a day and at night and uh, with a feeding frenzy of sharks one time. And, I mean, yeah, it was crazy. But uh, this a couple of dives that we did were real interesting. They were called drift dives. And what it is is that the boat would find a place where it was known that there was a very strong current. And all of us crazy divers would jump off the boat into the strong current, and the boat literally would, I mean, we're talking a strong enough current that in an hour you've gone a quarter of a mile. Strong current. And and the boat, the way that the boat is locates the divers is by following the bubbles. And so, and the way that the divers locate the boat is you're always looking up and making sure you can see the underside, the belly of the boat as you're going along. It was a beautiful experience. It was a wonderful experience. I remember being 30 or 40 feet down and I just spread my arms out and it was like I was flying over this coral reef silently and just watching it go underneath and, and seeing off in the periphery different fish and things. It was, it was a beautiful experience. And literally, my life depended on looking up and making sure that I had kept that boat located. Because if not, I would drift away. It's very much like what the writer is saying here in the book of Hebrews. As we get into chapter 2, it's the danger of drifting. And all of us are exposed to this danger. Don't think that you're not. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's a real dangerous posture. Because there are things that compete for our affections, that compete for our desire all the time. And the God of this world is really good at packaging things to look good. I've spent 40-some years in the advertising industry. I know what packaging looks like, human speaking, humanly speaking. But it's really true that those enticements, those things that are in front of us that compete for our desire, compete for our affections. They're real. And drifting can take place when there's a subtle shift in my desire. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As we look at the message of chapter 1, it's essentially that God has spoken by His Son. And His Son is the creator, the sustainer, the owner, the ruler, and the redeemer of the universe. Of all that is, uh, remember we talked about the world Aenon instead of cosmos. Usually the word worlds in chapter one is, it's, tr it's translated that of the ages. And it's every dimension on every level is essentially saying he's in charge of that. He created that. The heavenly realm, the earthly realm, the spiritual realm, the temporal realm, all of it belongs to Jesus. And so when we look at that, we, we see that in, in that, that he's greater than the angels because they're part of that created order of things. And, and we looked at that at length last week when we looked at angels and, 
And yet the whole message of chapter 1 is something stupendous has happened. He goes back, he talks about the Old Testament, he talks about the prophets and how God communicated with man in portions, in pieces and parts. But now has given us the full revelation of who he is, what he's about in his son. And so as we consider Jesus in this, we see that the Old Testament was important. And if it was important, then how much more important is it to get things right as it pertains to Jesus? And that's the message of this book, of this letter, of this epistle. Interestingly, there are no commands uh, in chapter 1. Uh, it, it, there's nothing for us to do that's outlined there. But there's declaration and celebration of who Jesus is and the greatness of who he is and the fact that he is the final word of God. And so as we consider this, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see some very important critical linkage to chapter 1. Remember, this is a letter. Uh, I remember when I was in college, one of the things that was required whenever we were taking a course and I studied Hebrews in college. Once a week for an entire semester, you had to sit down and read the entire thing in one sitting. That was required reading. And, and the point of that was, is that this is one literary unit. It's one letter. It was written to a group of people, but you read it like a letter. And that didn't mean that I got off into the, you know, rabbit trail land like I love to do, but it meant you just sit down and read it. And, and so as we look at this, we remember that chapter and verse headings were added by man for clarification, for ease in locating different scriptures, but it, it's one flow, it's one letter. Now, chapter 2 begins with a single word uh, in, in verse 1, therefore. All right, so we're going to look at this for just a couple of minutes because it's really important, guys, in the book of Hebrews, this word is used, or uh, it's it's also translated like in the New York Standard and some of the other translations, for this reason, instead of the word therefore, it's used 30 times. And, and so what we'll see here is that the writer is building a case. He is going from one thing to the next to the next, but he's linking them. And, and we'll see in a minute how this linkage works for us. Next slide, please. I want to look at this word, and this is really important when it comes to Bible study in general. This is a really good principle, so I wanted to take a few minutes and kind of camp on it. I look at the word therefore as like a hinge pin. You guys know what a hinge pin is? You see it on the screen. Uh, it's like you have the left side of the hinge maybe attached to the door, the right side of the hinge attached to the door frame, and the pin is what you drive through when you line those up to connect the two. It's the connecting pin. Therefore, connects what the content that you've just looked at to the content that's about to be discussed. And so when the writer here says, therefore, next slide, he says, therefore, he's saying what has been said is going to be connected to what is about to be said or what is being said, and that will establish what we call context. All right? A, a ditty to remember is a text without a context is a con. You will be safe if you observe the context of a passage. I could go in and I thought about it. I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I thought about giving you some examples from the word. Just uh, take my word for it. We can talk about it later if you'd like. 
Context is all important. If you don't follow the context, if you don't follow the, the rules of interpretation in, in Bible study, you can get lost. You can get off into some really weird things. You can be misled because understanding the context is all important. So a good question that I ask when I see the word therefore is I say, what's it therefore? And what it's here for in this is very important. So next slide. We're going to get into chapter 1, verse 1. Um, and I'm going to go through, I'm going to unpack this as we go. For, we're going to look at four verses this morning. Hey, that's a record. Uh, we're going to look at four verses, and we're going to look at this this whole principle, this uh, what it is to be exposed to the danger of drifting. And so then we'll come back, and I'll read the whole thing again, and then we'll just unpack it and look at it, make it very, very practical for all of us. So verse 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This is the first pastoral stance that the writer is taking. The writer has a pastor's heart. I mentioned that with the introduction a few weeks ago. That, And what he's saying, what he's doing is he's appealing to the people that that he is essentially has this pastoral relationship and, and he's going to give them a warning. This is a, it's a pastoral, it's a warning and it's an exhortation. An exhortation means to strongly encourage and he's going to strongly, very strongly encourage here. All right. Uh, yes. Pastors sometimes warn and I'm going to warn this morning. Uh, I've mentioned before when we go verse by verse through God's word, we're going to take the, the, the good stuff, the easy stuff. We're going to take the hard stuff and, and we're going to look at all of it as we go through. And there are some hard aspects and I pray that your heart is open. And this isn't a condemning thing where, you know, everybody should walk out of here with a little dark cloud over their head. It should be a real encouraging thing to be able to say, Lord, what about me? And I would encourage you, apply this as we go. It's the first danger of six that are here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the word therefore, essentially what the writer is doing is he's, he's prompting the reader, prompting you and I to apply chapter one. Because when he says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away. What's he talking about? The things that we've heard, the things that he just covered in chapter one. Why? Because Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the owner, the ruler, and the redeemer of all that is. And, and, and he's greater than the angels. He owns the angels. He, they worship him, not the other way around. We talked about that last week. Uh, and so what we have to do is understand that very often when I teach, and, and the method of teaching that I use is called inductive teach, inductive Bible study, where it's observe, interpret, and apply, is we want to apply God's word as we go. And this doesn't require me to do that at this point. The writer himself is saying, look, you need to apply what's been said in chapter one as we get into this thing in chapter two, because if you don't, you're exposing yourself to drift. And if you drift away, that's not good. This is a very sober, very serious warning. He says we must give the more earnest heed. What he's saying is we must pay close attention. We, he's, what he's saying is to listen. What is God saying here? 
In chapter 3, he says, consider Jesus in 3.1. We'll look at that shortly when we get to it. In chapter 12, he says, fix your gaze upon Jesus. And so what he's doing here throughout this is he's getting us to get close to God, getting us to get close to Jesus, getting us to listen to him, to consider him, to fix our gaze upon him. He's not talking about a passive relationship. This is an active relationship. There's something that's required of me. You've heard me say before, I'll say it again, the only thing that God ever requires of me is that I show up. Just show up. He'll do the work. Romans 12.2 says to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service, which should be your default position. Why? Because God the Son took on human form as God's final, decisive word to the world. Not final, because he's not spoken since then. I I want you to understand something. But final and decisive in that since Jesus came, all that God has to say is rooted in Jesus. All that he has to say points towards Jesus. And all that he has to say is proven by conformity to Jesus. In other words, we talked about it. You don't look through the wrong end of the telescope. We interpret the Old Testament through the new. It's not the other way around. And we interpret the things that were said by the prophets through Christ, through the full revelation of God. And so it's not that God doesn't speak, but when he does, he does speak consistent with his word. He'll never speak in a manner that's inconsistent with what is revealed of him through his character and his nature apart from his word. And so uh, it's really important that we understand that. And the point is, is if you ignore God, you'll lose everything. Now, remember, I'm not going to sit here. I really don't want to get dogmatic about this. Can you lose your salvation? Are you eternally secure? As for me, you guys know my stance on that. Don't ask me about yours. As for me, I am secure eternally. And I I absolutely believe that. I own that. I don't worry about that. Each one of us is in a position to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a per, it's not for me to, to, you know, to do some kind of weird Protestant papal decree that, you know, you, you and you kind of a thing. That's between you and the Lord. And we do well to listen. That's the point that he's making here. Uh, so as we link the context with chapter 2 from chapter 1, the writer makes three distinct points from chapter 1 that we do well to consider getting into chapter 2. The first is God has been speaking all along. We see that in chapter 1 where he says he spoke to the prophets, or through the fathers, through the prophets in many portions, in many ways. Now, the second is he's speaking directly and personally through Jesus, through his son, through son. Remember, we looked at that. It's not talking about um, family tie as much as it is position. The son was, was the heir of all things. The son is the one who inherits. The son is the one who is over the whole deal. And so that's the point when it says that he has spoken to us in son. The word his is in italics in chapter one, and it's there added for clarification. I think it messes it up, but that's fine. Uh, it's to, to, to show us that there's a distinct position that Jesus has 
over all creation. The third thing is that his personal... Listen to this, too. This is important. His personal appearance has rendered all other messages and messengers as relative to who he is and what he has done. The person and the work of Christ. Very, very important. Again, we interpret that through him. We don't interpret him through that. Now, when he says, lest we drift away in in verse 1 here, what does he mean, drift away? And and again, I you saw in the title slide we got a, you know, a boat in fog and all of that. I thought it was a cool picture, but there's more to it that happens spiritually as we begin to drift. What it means simply is to float by. Uh, what it means for me when I'm 40 feet down and I'm just riding on the current, I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm just simply going for a ride. I'm allowing myself to drift. We'll talk about that more as we go. Uh, but what's important here is the writer is saying, look, you need to pay close attention to who Jesus is, what he's about, because if you don't, you're going to drift. And you're not going to just drift aimlessly. You're going to drift away from God. Very, very clear. Very important. Sobering. And so to do nothing in God's economy is to drift. Is that clear? Does that make sense? And so as we look at this, as we apply this to our lives, as we apply who Jesus is, what he's about, to do nothing about that is to drift. And it's to drift into destruction. All right? Again, I don't want to get into a whole theological argument about salvation. This is this book is written to believers. And there are people in various places in their relationship with the Lord. And what he's saying here, he's warning these believers, he's warning them against drifting away. Verse 2 and, and 3, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So when he talks about the word spoken through angels, he's talking about the law of Moses, uh, which was received by and through the the direction, through the intermediary work of angels. Uh, If you're a note taker and you write down Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 33.2, Acts 7.53, and Galatians 3.19, all of those specifically talk about the work of God through angels in bringing the old covenant and bringing the law of Moses to man. So when he he talks about that, he's talking about the, the word spoken through angels. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about their Bible at that time, the Old Testament, the old covenant. Now, when he talks about every transgression and disobedience, think about it. A transgression is something that you do. You transgress. You break the law. And, and he's in context, he's talking about the law of Moses. And disobedience, something you don't do. So he's talking about every transgression and disobedience, all of the things that you do that violate the law of Moses and everything you don't do that violates the law of Moses, those are the things that will incur wrath. Those are the things that, in our natural state, that by nature we're children of wrath. That's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. And that 
we are actually, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, that we're storing up wrath outside of Christ. Now, I'm talking about, clearly, this is for the unbeliever, and yet he's talking about things here that are difficult to understand. But the conclusion that I draw from this, folks, is what he's warning against here is apostasy. There is a very clear difference between somebody who struggles with sin as a believer and somebody who says, you know what? That's just the way it is. And, and, and what he's warning against is somebody who gets to a point in their drifting to where their heart becomes so hard that they just, you know what? I just don't care. I really don't care. And I question that person's salvation to begin with. So again, without trying to get off into the weeds on all of that. Uh, I, I know both sides. I've had people come up and want, when I'm teaching on one side, because the Bible teaches essentially both sides of that argument. I've had people come up to me that say, you know what, Pastor John, I'm, man, my life, I'm just hurting and I, you know, I'm just going through a lot in my life and all that. I, I just, and I, I wonder, you know, am I even saved? And I just love the Lord, but I just don't think I measure up. And, and people that are under condemnation, and, and I have absolutely encouraged them. Look, hang in there. There is a place where it doesn't depend on how I feel on a particular day. It, it's dependent upon who he is. And I've also experienced people say, well, you know, God told me it's okay for me to move in with my girlfriend and, you know, tell me whatever you want from that Bible. And I would question whether that person has ever come into a person, personal relationship with Christ because there's an outward appearance of godliness, but a denying of the power thereof. That's what the Bible talks about. And so, again, very serious matters. Walking the line through this, you just got to teach it the way that it comes out. We know that he's writing to believers, and we know that these are very difficult things that he's saying. And so how does that apply to me? Guard your heart. Guard your life. Guard your walk with him. Guard against drifting. We'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. So he says, how shall we escape? Uh, in in this verse, it, it it's interesting, I came across this, a greater word brought by a greater person having greater promises will bring a greater condemnation if it is neglected. So what he's talking about is, is this beautiful relationship that we have that if we neglect it, we're in trouble. When he talks about so great a salvation, it, it's not so large. The word is mega. In that sense, if you're talking about something that's really big, it's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is not mega, but there's a different word. And what it's the same word used for is magnitude. In Revelation 16, 18, he talks about a great earthquake. All right. He's talking about something with great magnitude, great effect. So when he talks about so great a salvation, it's, it's, it's a huge, it's, he's talking about the, the single most important transaction in someone's life. And series of transactions, yes, there's an initial reaction or transaction, but there are a series of transactions that we make as we go along, as we work out our salvation, as we are saved from various things. Yes, major deal on the front end, and then as we walk, as he delivers us, as he informs our thinking, as we understand his will for our lives, there are things that he saves us from all along the way. So when it talks about so great 
salvation. It's the same word that is used in the word so is the same word used in John 3.16 for God so loved the world. What he's talking about is a big deal. It expresses a depth. It expresses an unfathomable depth that that so great a salvation because if the Old Testament, again, if the Old Covenant produced a covering for sin, that I had to go back and I had to walk through this whole sacrificial deal over and over again, then in Christ, the one sacrifice for all that takes away, not just covers, but that takes away sin, far greater, far greater in magnitude, far greater in significance. We're saved by a great Savior. We're saved at a great cost. And we're saved from a great penalty. Verse 3, again, when he talks about things that were spoken by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard. Uh, It's interesting. The, The New Testament, of course, didn't exist when this was written. These guys based their understanding of what this thing called Christianity was upon, first of all, the things that the Lord himself had said, and then following that, and especially for the huge amount of people, us included, based on the things that others saw. So what he's saying here, well, in in Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read a little bit from Luke and a little bit from Acts. Now, the, the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts are actually one literary unit. It's, it's one writing. It's split at the ascension. It's split after the cross. And, and that's how it's been arranged in your Bible. But if it were put in there the way it was written, it's one piece. Now, Luke makes a couple of comments. One at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke and then one at what we look at as the book of Acts. He makes a couple of comments and I want to look at those. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of Luke, Luke writes this. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So what he's saying is this is eyewitness testimony. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. And so Luke then goes on and, for our blessing, writes these things out. And what he's doing, though, is he's reflecting on the same thing that the writer in Hebrews is talking about, that first these things came from the Lord himself, and then they came from those who were with him. And and they have been written down for our instruction. Acts chapter 1 He picks it back up after the resurrection and just prior to the ascension. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he had presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I know that's a mouthful, but what he's saying essentially is the same thing that the writer in Hebrews is saying here. First, it came from the Lord himself, and then it came from those who were with him, 
those who saw him, those who experienced him, those who handled him. John talks about that in 1 John, that we handled him. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw these things. We understood. And and then the writer in verse 4 goes one step further. He says, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So when he says that God is also bearing witness, the word there, sun epimarturio, it's a big word, but the word soon means co. It, 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 marturio is the word we get for witness. It's where we get the word martyr from. And in the sun epimarturio, that word means that to join one's witness to another. So what he's saying, what the writer is saying here is he's saying, okay, first it came by Jesus himself, and then it came by the apostles and by the people that he was exposed himself to after he resurrected and before that, all through his ministry. And then on top of that, God joining his witness to theirs, various miracles, wonders, and signs by the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, spoken by the Lord, confirmed by those who heard, and then testified to by the Holy Spirit from the Father himself. Something I think is really interesting in verse 4 is no attention is given to present miracles. Interesting. To me, what that shows is it's not about the miracles. It's about the man. Uh, there's a whole deal out there, uh, a lot of really, really bad doctrine about miracles. Is God in the miracle-making business? Absolutely. Is is your salvation a complete, absolute miracle? Absolutely. That we would actually be given life, being born spiritually dead, is a complete miracle. Does he sometimes heal? Absolutely. We always rely upon uh, his sovereignty in that. So the denial of miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the counterfeit of them, uh, there are errors on both sides. There are some that are so put off by the abuse that they, oh, no, 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 God would never, no, he's just not a God of miracles. That was back then, that was that was for the apostolic age, and that stopped, you know, the gifts stopped, the miracles stopped, all of that. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible says that. But I also believe that there's a huge amount of abuse out there. And and what I go by is what Jesus says in the Gospel according to John when he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We studied it not long ago, not many months ago. When he says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is threefold. He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he goes into what that means. And it says that he will guide you into all truth. That's the second thing. And that he'll bear witness of me. And so when I look at the stuff that I see on television, the the stuff that I see in our community in different organizations, when it doesn't look like Jesus, when the miraculous is really reduced to a show, when it's become kind of a carnival, Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Make sure that what you see lines up with this. 
when when the writer here is talking about miracles, he's not talking about present miracles here in the latter part of the, the well, probably 60 to 65 decades after the crucifixion and resurrection. He's not talking about current miracles. He's talking about miracles that God did then. What were the miracles for? Acts chapter 2 tells us what they were for, that they were there as attesting miracles. They were there to demonstrate that if Jesus indeed was the Messiah, that he had the power to bend the laws of physics. What that was to do was to confirm his identity. It was to confirm the fact that he has the power to forgive sin. It wasn't miracles as an end to themselves. So remember, he rebuked the people that had that understanding. He said, you seek me because I gave you a sign, not because you know I can forgive your sin. And, and so really important, guys, that we understand the miraculous here. Yes, God absolutely validated the ministry of Jesus through the supernatural. He owns the laws of physics. He can bend them anytime. We look at it as a miracle. He looks at it as just being God. I mean, he he can do whatever he wants. He can alter things however he wishes. I totally have room in my own theology for that. I don't have room for people that will detract and people who will try to titillate someone through experiential stuff. Because the amount, what that amounts to is that person allowing themselves to be drawn away. It's very dangerous. Again, and it plays right into what's being said here. So as we look at drifting here, we're going to go back through the first four verses again. I'm just going to read through them, and then I want to unpack this a bit as we look at it. Verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God, also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will? Something that I think is, again, the sobering aspect of this, I was thinking about this and thinking, you know, uh, one of the things that happens in the animal world, I put a slide together for this, uh, the danger of drifting. What One of the things that happens, uh, this is a picture of some wolves with a bison, uh, and it just was something that I began to think about. We're in a war, and there is a very clear battle that's going on in the spiritual realm. And we've talked about, we talked about, when we talked about angels last week, we talked about the order that's there. We talked about the fact that it's orchestrated. And that battle is for your soul, for my soul. The God of this world has legions of angels. We call them demons, fallen angels, that do his bidding. We don't understand how they're orchestrated, how they're organized, but very much like what happens when there are hungry wolves, is they will wait until they get someone who is weak and some someone who drifts away from the pack, who drifts away from the herd. Those are the ones that they attack. Those are the ones that they take down. And, and, and Satan's strategy for you and for me is not much different 
what he wants is for my soul to be forfeit. What he wants is for me to be weakened to the point where I'm off away. And then he can do his roaring, walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour thing. Folks, this is important to me. I don't talk about it much and I won't. But I went through a period like this in my own life where I began to drift. And at great cost, God reeled me in. And I'm just telling you, as your pastor, as your friend, stay tight. The stuff that the world offers can get really attractive. Uh, God blessed me with wealth at one point, and, and I had two very successful businesses when anywhere in the world I wanted, spent whatever I needed, whatever it was. And I understand, for me, it was the deceitfulness of riches. And that's what the Bible calls it. And I didn't see it. Talk about that. I didn't see it. Until the enemy was there and I was surrounded. And by the grace of God, he got a hold of my life once more. I can't tell you how serious this is. Like I said, we're going to look at the good stuff. We're going to look at the hard stuff. This is hard stuff. For me, it's personal. And I would rather be transparent with you and share that, yeah, I haven't lived a perfect life. I've I've blown it. Than to see you assume that we can just come in and put on our Sunday face and go out of here and not be impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what is drifting? Here's a good definition of it. It's a gradual, imperceptible movement from one priority to another. In the case of the Hebrew believers, the reason this was written, it was a desire to be part of the Jewish culture and to not be marginalized as a Christian. We've talked about the great loss that they had. They lost their, you know, when they were put out of the synagogue, that meant that they were put out of their family. They were put, they lost their livelihood very often. They were excommunicated. They were shunned from their society, from their culture. And here these people had been going along. They had grown up with all of these temple rites and things that they did and the, the national feasts that they would go to seven times a year. And, and each one was like a week long get together and party and all of that. And I mean, they had this whole rich tradition. And then they came to Christ and, and what they received was infinitely better. We're looking at that and the writer's very clear to point that out in context. But the longing started coming in. They began to to move from one priority to the other. They saw the power of Christ in their own lives. And then as time went on, they were disappointed that he hadn't returned. And this is still written just 30 years after he left. And here we are 2,000 years later waiting for him yet to return. And so they were really discouraged. He's writing to a group of people who are very discouraged and considering going back to the old way. And what the writer says, is, you go back to the old way, that's death. There is no old way. There is the way. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Singular. And so these hard warnings that are in the book of Hebrews are to caution them and us 
about any other thing that will compete for our affections. That's drifting. That's what it looks like. For you and I, it's whatever we choose to invest in or whatever we choose to love. And I'm not talking about people. That, I'm not talking about relationships. This, what I'm talking about is, is what, what is competing for my affections? What is competing for my adoration? What is competing? What am I spending my life on? You will always, here's a principle, you will always arrange and organize your life around what's important to you. And if it's not Christ, you're going to drift. So what does drifting look like? From the text here, it looks like, first of all, there's a couple of things that we're going to look at from the text. The first is neglect or indifference. It's an unwillingness to prioritize or to heed God's word. Is God's word a priority in your life? Do you hold high the scriptures? Do you really believe that it's the inspired and errant word of God? That it is his speech to man? That is infinitely more than a book that by his spirit, through his word, he will work. The second thing is it's an unwillingness to prioritize or to heed God's voice. He's still speaking, folks. Do you hear him? Is there something in the way? Have you allowed sin into the camp to the point where he's not speaking? You're not hearing? The third thing is the things of God, while portrayed outwardly as important, inwardly really aren't. Say that again. The things of God, while outwardly portrayed as important, inwardly really are not so important. I always consider, I look at the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read a little bit of that, draw a couple things out of it. And I'm not saying that we're the church of Laodicea. Don't get all condemned. But we are to examine ourselves. We are to apply these things to our lives. As John writes down the apocalypse, as as he's seeing it, in Revelation chapter 3, this letter to the church at Laodicea, this is the church that nobody wants to be a part of. He says, I know your works, just as Jesus talking. I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know, listen, do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy... From me, gold refined in the fire, that's righteousness that only he can give. That you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He says, I know your works and I'm not impressed. That's the sin of indifference. Do nothing and drift. Spiritual blindness, is, it fascinates me. I have allowed the God of this world to blind my eyes at times. 
And, and it really is blindness. You don't see. What's interesting about drifting is the people around you will see it usually long before you do. It's imperceptible. It's imperceptible to the drifter, but not to the people on the shore. I am so glad that that boat followed the bubbles. I mean, my life depended on it. I'm not going to go at length into this, but, well, I'm going to go a little bit. The story that Jesus tells, yeah, see how, that's how I think. Um, that about the rich man and Lazarus. You guys remember that from Luke chapter 16, if you know your Bible? I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It takes a, a chunk of the chapter, and we don't have time. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, why did Jesus have to put that in there? That's just gross. But he did. So it was the beggar, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Interesting. Oh, I, I want a rabbit trail on that. One's carried by the angels, one's buried. But he's in torment. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And now the story goes on and, and the, the rich man is trying to get Abraham to send Lazarus. He's still assuming that Lazarus is lower than him, which is interesting. Uh, and trying to get Lazarus to go, you know, uh, dip his finger and bring some water to cool my mouth in this flame. And then he tries to get Lazarus to go to his brothers and, and, and the whole deal. But the point I want to make from this story that relates to Hebrews chapter 2 is the rich man's sin was not being rich. He, he did nothing. He didn't do anything wrong to Lazarus. His was that of being indifferent to him, neglecting his need. And, and that would have been a product of a right relationship with God. So when we look at drifting, a great deal of what brings about drifting is doing nothing. Nothing. Are you actively swimming against the tide of this world? Because there is no such thing as neutral. If you are not for me, you are against me. If you are not taking ground in the kingdom, you're drifting. And this world is drifting to, towards destruction. It just is. Another thing that drifting looks like is unrepentant sin. Their own unrepentant sin doesn't grieve them. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, you're not going to come and tell me. Just tell my kids about that. It's like, yeah, you're going to go do drugs and experiment. You're not going to tell me. I won't be there. So let me talk to you about that. Well, if there is anyone here that has unrepentant sin, life-dominating sin even, if it doesn't grieve you, be worried. You're drifting. And it won't end well. Hardness of heart, spiritual confusion set in. 
well, I think maybe I'm still going to heaven. I'm not sure because I know that God doesn't want this in my... We go through this whole mental gyration thing. Things become very confusing when we're involved and we're captivated and we're participating in a repentant sin. Habitual sin becomes easier. That thing that convicted you were so convicted about back then, not as big a deal. A lot easier. Self is seated firmly on the throne of your heart. This is a big one. The Spirit's ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry is not that of empowering. Because he will not empower our lives when we are participating in sin. But of bringing conviction, correction, and possibly chastisement. We'll see that when we get to chapter 12. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. And so, as we ask the Lord to show us our own hearts, which are deceitfully wicked above all else, who can know them? That's what the Bible says. God is faithful. If he's putting his finger on something in your life, cooperate, repent, get right, don't drift. As the Spirit allows things, as, as the Lord allows things into our lives, maybe our lives get really tough. Mine did. Tougher than I'd ever had it. As He allows things, it's because He loves you. It's because He wants good things for you. It's because He wants to work in your life, in your heart, to such a degree that you've, you've chosen not to show up for. It's not because he wants to beat you up. I'll tell you what, I would rather be in the woodshed with dad any day than to be apostate. It's better than apostasy for sure. So how do I pay more attention to the things that I've heard and therefore keep from drifting? The first is this. Tighten your commitment and your loyalty to him. Drifting begins when loyalty slips. Very important. Is he the captain of my salvation? Is he the author and finisher of my faith? Is he the singular most important relationship in my life? Ahead of my wife? She's a close second. But ahead of my wife. That he is the most, he is the object of my desire. And if he's not, Drifting. So tighten your commitment. Tighten your loyalty to him. Out of that flow some wonderful things. We'll get to that in a minute. The second is to be accountable to another solid Christian. Now I mean solid. I am very, very careful with people to whom I choose to be accountable in my life. I, I'm sorry, but I, I go to the Gospel of John where it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to man because he knew it was in man. Entrusting someone else with the contents of your heart is risky. you got to be vulnerable. And that person has to demonstrate trustworthiness. Grace is free. Trust is earned. Verse 
in my book. And it's just a wise thing to do. But it's necessary. Accountability is everything. If you are struggling, get it out in the open with someone you trust. With me, it won't go anywhere ever. My wife doesn't know the counseling sections I have with other people, the things that I talk about. No. But accountability and, and being transparent and saying, you know what? I'm really struggling with this. Forget the shame. The enemy will keep you bound up in shame. He will keep you trapped. Get over it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Agree with him. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So be accountable to another solid Christian. Drifting is not as noticeable to the drifter. Again, it's very noticeable to those close to him. Put down roots. Put down roots. What that means is be committed. The third thing is hold your life up to the immovable truth. That's why the writer in chapter 2, verse 1, links chapter 1. Because Jesus is all that he is. And we've looked at that. We've looked at how much he says in the first four verses. I mean, because Jesus is all that he is. Put your desire in that. Put your faith in him. Let the weight of your life down on Christ. Hold your life up to the immovable truth. It's better to look up and out than not and not down and in. That's dangerous. If I would have just continued to look at the reef going by when I was drift diving. I remember at one point I, I, I had been just enjoying it so much I looked and the boat kind of had gotten far away and I had to swim like mad to catch up. Look up. Not down. Don't let the enemy keep you held in whatever that is. You know, folks, if you're in good shape with the Lord this morning, just stuff this into your spiritual bank account to draw out if and when you need it. This is important stuff. And it doesn't mean that everybody sitting here is like, ah, you know, that's not, that's not what I want to do. But, but this is a very solid, sobering, serious principle. The principle of drifting. And so, bank it. If it doesn't apply today, bank it. So, in wrapping up this morning, when we pay closer attention to the gospel, there are several things, there are actually a number of things, I listed eight and there's probably more, that are benefits. Because I want to end on a good note. No, seriously, when we pay closer attention, when we do what the writer is saying to do here, our lives are blessed. And, and this is just a short list of some things that we will benefit from as the result of having him be first in my life. The first is wrong thinking, which we're good at, is replaced by right thinking understanding what it is he has for us. Not lying to myself about stuff, but right thinking replaces wrong thinking. 
The second is confusion is replaced by clarity. Very true. I mean, that confusion that comes when I'm allowing my life to drift from what I know he wants, where he, I know he wants me to be, uh, that just that self looking down, just that whole deal. It's like a fog is lifted and there's clarity, there's simplicity, there's beauty in walking rightly with the Lord. The third is the Spirit of God is free to rule and reign in one's heart. Again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit changes. When I sin, when I am in an area of sin, not not if I snap at my wife and I go tell her, honey, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about habitual. He's not going to empower your life. You can think that he's going to empower your life all you want, but he's not going to empower your life. His ministry changes from that of empowering to moving around in front of you to head you off at the pass. John, stop. Stop. Do business with me. You're not going to surprise me. I know it all anyway. Stop. That's kind of what it looks like in a graphic way. That's how it looks like with me. I mean, maybe he has a different voice with you, but I mean, it's not empowering. It's conviction. And he comes to bring conviction in those areas. And so... What, when he is free to rule and reign in my heart, then I'm empowered once again. Then I'm walking forward with him again. Then there's ease. This is all about us having a life of ease. Not easy, but a life of ease with him. As a result of that, the empowering fruit of the Holy Spirit produces deeds consistent with God's heart. God's purposes and God's will. Something I've warned on before, I've experienced again in my own life, you can cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. And I'm not just talking about having an upfront ministry. Yeah, that's part of it. But many times I've asked people, what were we created for? And very often people said, well, to serve God. And I say, absolutely false, absolutely wrong. We are created for fellowship with God. Out of the fellowship that we enjoy, out of the abundance of the relationship, fruitful service flows. It's never a means towards it. So you can be serving the Lord all day long or thinking that you're serving the Lord and you're actually using that as a covering for having a weak walk with the Lord. I'm very careful about people that we bring into ministry, in ministries in the body. And, and, and rightfully so, not because we're just walking, I'm just, I don't walk around with this, you know, uh, interviewing people or anything like that, but just want to be careful that people are solid in their relationship with the Lord if they have an aspect of service in the body. And, and it's just important. But the empowering fruit of the Spirit does produce deeds consistent with his heart. And his purposes and his will. It's, it's, it's a joy to serve the Lord. It's a joy to serve him with a clean heart. Now, one of the things I want to mention too, I love that the, the apostle Paul would tell people, he'd say, you know, I am conscious of nothing against myself. Paul never said, hey, I never sin anymore. I'm a Christian now. That would be foolish because sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we sin. 
But a mark of a person who is committed to not drifting is that doesn't last for very long. Drifting is very short in somebody who is sold out for Christ. Yeah, sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we get into areas we don't need to be in. Sometimes the Lord's work is to pry our fingers off of something that we shouldn't be involved in, even if it's an attitude of the heart. But it doesn't last long in the life of a believer, of the life of a true disciple of Christ. The fifth thing here is that guilt is replaced by peace. That wringing of the hands, oh man, I've done, I've got to get out of this, I don't know how to get out of this, I don't know, just that, just that chatter. It's just a settledness in walking with the Lord, in rightly walking with Him. Uncertainty is replaced by security. You know, one of the things that Again, it's very sobering, and I want to say this properly. If someone's heart is drifting, if someone is involved in sin, if someone is allowing something else to take first place in their heart, in their life, that niggling doubt of am I really his or not can start to creep in. And the God of the, the enemy is really good at getting us to doubt, at getting us to wonder, at getting us to question. That becomes a settled issue when you know that you're walking with Him. One of the things that's true, remember being in a place, this is years ago, where my heart was not right with the Lord. And I worried that I would just wake up one day and just feel better because I was under conviction I was not responding to his conviction, but I was under conviction, and I was just simply, he had his finger pressure on my soul. I needed to get right with him. And I was worried that maybe I wasn't his. And what it would look like if he just decided to pull back and say, you know what, you want it, you got it. What that would feel like in my heart, in my soul, is I would just feel better with my sin. That's scary. Uncertainty is replaced by security. One lives in hope, looking forward instead of futility. Earthly indifference is replaced by eternal purposes in one's life. And that's the point, folks. It's dangerous out there. Yes, a life of fruitfulness, a life of abundance, a life of peace, a life of absolute wonder on the one hand when we simply want to walk with him, when we simply allow him to to rule and reign in our lives. But when we begin to entertain other things, when we begin to allow those things that are competing for our affections, and it doesn't matter really what it does, but it doesn't. I mean, what I'm speaking in general terms, whatever it is, you go into that area of being in danger of and it never, nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, you know, I think I'll walk away from God today. It doesn't start like that. It never works like that. It's one small step at a time away from him, unchecked. So as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, as we allow God to touch our lives, 
and to check us, we can maintain a solid walk with him. That's what it's about. And yes, do we need to be sober-minded? Absolutely. We have a real enemy, and there's a real battle, and it's for your soul and mine. Do we serve a great God and King that's greater than all of that? Yeah. And what he's saying in this is it pays to stay close. Pay close attention. Consider. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is so powerful.